When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Attention BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer-A-Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer-A-Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. All right, it's film study. We're looking back again at week 12 to victory. This time we're going to look at how the defense performed out in L.A. Ken McCusick, how you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I'm doing good. 80-degree weather down here in, uh, in Florida. Feeling much better than our guest today up in Ohio. I'm sure it's cold up there. Michael, how you doing? <laughs> hey, Josh, Ken. How are you guys doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's funny. It's like temperature wise, it's actually kind of moderate up here. It kind of was in the, in the mid fifties all day, but they had like 40 to 50 mile hour wind gusts throughout the day today. I mean, it was wild, uh, out on the road. So that made it feel a little bit colder. Uh, but I'll, I'll take it. Uh, I have family here and, uh, and, and actually was born in the, uh, Dayton, Ohio area. So, uh, if, if there's, you know, mid fifties, Almost, you know, a week before December, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, that that, that wind's going across the country. I'm seeing lots of people with issues with Christmas decorations being blown over and stuff. And I just think it serves them right for putting it up before Thanksgiving. <laughs> That's what they get. 
right. It's supposed That's to go. An ornament for an ornament, Old Testament stuff there from Josh. Well, yeah. If 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 the Lord is blowing the the ornaments over for you, you didn't put them up at the right time. We're we're too scary. We we want to avoid political discussion on Thanksgiving and religious discussion. I think both. Right. All right. Well, by Lord, I mean wind or. Uh, Okay, I, that's just, go. I, gotta, I just got out of the movie Frozen 2 before recording this podcast, uh, and there's a lot of talk about like the wind something that controls the wind, so we'll just say it's that person. And you just, you, you just got to have rules in an orderly society, Ken. I mean, you have to wait until the day after Thanksgiving, at least before you start <laughs> putting up the Christmas stuff. Now, okay. How can everybody go Black Friday? If they if they don't have their Thanksgiving ornaments up already, I mean, just through the whole schedule law for the shopping holiday to be tossed in there, it does create some problems. But I, I'm I'm a staunch no Christmas stuff up before at least Black Friday. And, and I I go one day earlier. Thanksgiving Day, you're allowed to pull it out if you want, because you got family in town, family all together. You can do it all together if you want. That's cool. going to be you want to get away from them. You know? <laughs> oh, that too. <laughs> put up ornaments. But, I got to go out and put up some lights. I'll see you guys later. Right. But that's what this podcast is for. So you can be listening to this while you're out there avoiding the family. So uh, let's get into it. And this just lopsided of a game. Yeah. Wonderful to, to go into LA to beat the reigning NFC champs. This is the most Lopsided game in terms of Devoa of the entire season. The the win over the Rams was the single best Devoa game by any team this season. Uh, the Ravens are now at the top in terms of weighted Devoa on Football Outsiders. They're number two in terms of overall Devoa, still by a thin margin to the Patriots, but uh, having a, a a magical year. They really are, and you know, I try to be level headed <laughs> with my approach towards the team and. Uh, it's just getting almost impossible to do that anymore. I mean, you, you're not, it's not hyperbole when you're using words like domination. I mean, that, that's what's going on in these games. And these are against good defenses, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, you can, you know, people for, for a while were really kind of hanging their hat on, well, it was the Miami game and, well, it's the Bengals. But, you know, we've got Patriots. Say what you want about the Texans, but the Texans were playing well and, and they still are uh, by and large. And then you get the Rams, uh, at least who defensively, I think, mm-hmm. were a top 10 unit coming into that game. So um, you can't just point to the Miami game and the Bengals of the world. You know, they, this this team is dominating some good defenses. Yeah, it's just it's so cool to have the hot young quarterback in the league. And, and we're, you know, whatever it is, 18 games now, I guess, into Lamar Jackson's career, including the playoffs. And I think we can honestly say right now there hasn't been a team. We don't know how to stop the Lamar Jackson offense. We do not know how. And it, it is Lamar and Lamar's athleticism, which is driving all this, which is why I find a lot of the MVP voting kind of discussion even silly in a sense, because if you look at stats, there are people on the same planet as Lamar Jackson right now. If you look at his effect on the remainder of the offense, there ain't anybody close. No, and I, I think you're, you're completely right with the rest of the league just doesn't know how to stop this offense right now. I mean, Maybe the Steelers earlier this year came the closest. Uh, I mean, I mean, you can look at the KC game and the Browns games, but I think that was really more about uh, struggles on the defensive side of the ball than the offense struggling by and large, except for the Steelers game. I, I know we're not here to talk about that, but I think the Steelers did some things um, to, to really kind of limit Lamar in that game. And you just can't go back to the wild card game against the Chargers like people seem to always want to do. Well, that's the blueprint, right? 
But I think what people forget about that game is they look at it like it's static, right? Like the team we're watching right now is that same team. So what they did would still work. But Lamar is better, right? You have a lot of uh, second-year guys on offense now who are better. Uh, you have some rookies now who weren't on the team last year who are contributing in big ways like Hollywood Brown. Even Miles Boykin showed up with some big catches uh, in that game against the Rams. So it's not that same team. So whenever you want to apply that Chargers had the blueprint logic, well, they had the blueprint versus that team. <laughs> but this isn't sure. the same team. Com- completely agree. Completely agree. Uh, right now, what did you think? The, uh, the guy I want to ask you about in terms of this game because I really, I really want to hear your opinion on this. Is Marcus Peters, in terms of certainly the interception was great. Some of the behavioral things I'm maybe not as crazy about. Yeah, and I and I, I can understand um, why people would feel that way. And I think if you go back and just kind of do some reading on his his previous stops in L.A. and Kansas City, you hear some similar things from fans. Um, you know, of those teams that, you know, some of the some of the stuff uh, that he does, you know, um, after the play or, or you know, kind of on the sidelines. Not, we're not talking about off the field stuff. This isn't like character or trouble mm-hmm. or anything like that. We're just talking about um, maybe some people being a little uncomfortable with like just how far some of the kind of trash talk and some of the other stuff kind of goes. Um, but you could you could understand like for him he tried to downplay what this game meant all week, right? Just like Earl did with, with Seattle. But I think Earl, you know, by and large kind of handled it a little bit differently during the game, even though he apparently had some words for, for Pete Carroll. Uh, <laughs> but I think you could see with, with Marcus, he, he just couldn't hold it in at various points during this game. You right. know, he just had to let the Rams know what was happening to them. Right. Now, he, he, one of the things that usually that will often happen is that cornerbacks will get into it with the guy they're covering, the wide receiver. And, you know, I got you on this play. You got me. Oh, you didn't get me. I let you have that. And, you know, they're, they're talking trash to each other the whole game. But it's very rare for effectively one cornerback to be taunting the opposing cornerback who effectively took his position and then to have words after the game and the and Ramsey to have to be restrained in the tunnel. And, you know, there isn't anybody right now who's not looking at this trade and saying the DaCosta didn't make the move of the decade. Well, OK, I'm, I'm slightly exaggerating, but the move of the year in terms of acquiring uh, Peters at the cost he did and that the Rams didn't drastically overpay for Ramsey in terms of the future, especially considering the fact they don't have him signed yet. Uh, but the strange thing about this is that those two guys aren't on, they aren't on the field together, you know, at any given time. And yet somehow they end up almost in a fist fight at the end of the game and, and yelling at each other and having to be constrained in the tunnel. I mean, just that, that to me is, a, is not what I, what I really want to see. I mean, I know he's an intellectual leader in the secondary and he teaches all sorts of technique to the other guys. And he's a, probably a great scout for the entire NFC, not just, not just the other teams. But I just I, I would have preferred not to see that. Yeah, and I'm 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 gonna chalk this up to a one-off because I think you had a little bit of a perfect storm situation with. Uh, I think Jalen Ramsey kind of has a reputation around the league as being one of the bigger trash talkers at any position, uh, and then you know you have Marcus who. I don't know enough about him to know if he kind of has that rep as being a trash talker on the field, but I think obviously in this game, you know, it meant a lot to him. And so I think you had these two guys coming together, one guy really fired up to go back at his old team, 
the other guy who was just, you know, uh, an established trash talker. I mean, go back a couple of years ago, right, when Steve Smith uh, was with the Ravens and they matched up with Jacksonville, right, and he and Ramsey got into it. I think Steve had some words for him after the game. So I think this is just kind of how Ramsey operates. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, you'd you, you prefer not to see it, and obviously the, the coaching staff would certainly prefer that it not, uh, you know, sort of get to the level that it got to. So hopefully it's just a one-off uh, because of, you know, all the things that we just talked about. Well, and it did seem like just a Ramsey thing because Marcus Peters, after the game, was cool with, like, the other Rams. He was going around and hugging and telling people good game and everything. And him and Ramsey were never even in the building at the same time. That's a good point. You know, so what, why does – what could he have said or did he – did he say something maybe in the media or on Twitter or whatever that that uh, pissed him off? But it, it it doesn't seem like it obviously happened on the field. Yeah, and you know, look, I, I don't I don't want to get into some of the the uh, the things that happened with the Miles Garrett and Mason Rudolph situation. But hey, sometimes you just don't know what guys are saying out there, right? Sometimes the mics is is as hard as it is to believe in this day and age that there's you know things that can be said that that on-field mics don't pick up. It seems almost unbelievable because they have them everywhere and players are mic'd up. Mm-hmm. And But sometimes things are just said. And like you said, maybe in this situation, it didn't even happen on the field. Um, you know, it was in the tunnel or whatever. And, and you know, how that can go. I mean, these these are highly, highly, uh, highly is not even, it doesn't even do it enough justice, ultra competitive guys. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of testosterone, a lot of bravado and uh, things can spiral. Uh, <laughs> things can spiral quickly, and, and maybe that happened a little bit uh, between those two. All right. Well, the Ravens pushing now towards being the odds-on favorite to win the Super Bowl. They, some people think they're there already. I think basically the Patriots are a slight additional favorite, basic on the cross-section of online books I check. Um, they really can't afford to slip up at this point. They need to make sure they get that bye, get one less playoff game. They would love to get home field advantage. It would be a big advantage if they did, but uh, – but more importantly, I think they need to get the bye and uh, and make sure that they get that first playoff game at least at home. They've proven the ability to win at New England. They wouldn't be a big underdog there. They've proven the ability to beat the 2019 Patriots with the personnel they have. I think it's just a matter of making sure that they don't slip up in that first playoff game. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, you, you can't afford any slip-ups at this point. And look, we all heard it any given Sunday, and it's true. It's true. I mean, it's it's absolutely true. It's a week-to-week league, and anything can happen, even despite the role that the Ravens are on right now, offensively and defensively. Um, but it's just getting harder and harder to see it happening. You know, I know we'll, we'll dive more into it, at least from the defensive side of things, but it just seems like there's such a, a level of focus, and it starts with Lamar, um, you know, the MVP talk you know, records on Monday night for first, you know, quarterback star in his first. He doesn't want to talk about any of that stuff. You know, it's I want to win a Super Bowl. And it's like the thing that Harb said a couple of games back is the stage gets bigger, your focus gets narrower. His focus is always it seems like it's all already narrow. It's it's always been narrow. Yeah, it's it's certainly you know, each of those the coaches is at is at such a high level. They're all tens, uh, you know, in terms of their their value of the organization. But Harbs has been a terrific motivator and game manager this year, by far his best game management year. Um, and, and he's been a motivator this year at a very high level. And what I see out of this is, in particular in terms of the power rankings, and there are so many Ravens fans, so much Twitter emphasis on the power rankings, 
and the fact that the 49ers are one or maybe the Patriots are still hanging around at two or wherever they might be. And the Ravens are behind some of these teams that maybe they've either already beaten or they've beaten everybody. The other team has beaten or I don't even know what. But it seems to be a power rankings inferiority complex, generally speaking. I think the 49ers fans have it. I think the Ravens fans certainly have it. I think Seattle fans. I think there's plenty of other people along the league who have it. But Harbaugh, I think, is happy to see the Ravens at number two, at least in some of the stuff, because it's a motivational opportunity for him to say, hey, look, we haven't won anything yet. They decided in February and, hey, you know, we're not even number one right now. They're the best team in football, which he said actually in his interview today. Yeah, I think he loves that. I think he loves being in that position. And, you know, you could say probably most coaches, if not all coaches, you know, prefer to be in that position. But I think particularly when you have a team that's on the role, uh, the kind of role that they're on right now, that you're looking for things, right? You're looking for things to kind of keep them somewhat grounded, even though, like I said, I think Lamar's kind of already there. And I think other guys on the team are too. But just as a coach, you know, you're, you're just trying to keep that kind of thing in check. And so, um, you know, you can certainly use something like that to your advantage. And we've heard it right uh, after even these these really dominant games. Hey, we're not we're not receiving any bouquets or you can't win it. You know, you can't win a Super Bowl in December. So uh, he, he's definitely, uh, you know, using that as the party line right now. And and um, I love it. Uh, I, I think you got to do what you got to do to try to keep uh, people sort of level set. And it might not necessarily be for the guys on the team per se, maybe there's some specific guys and, and you got to make sure that you kind of keep that, but it's just a messaging thing, you know, and, and, and that's what you want the message to be like, Hey, we haven't done anything yet. This is great. We're playing well. That's awesome. We haven't done anything yet. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. And if the, if, if the waterfall effect is really there that I think is, which means the coordinators certainly are, are, are keeping that focus going. And, and both of them, I think are players, coordinators, the, the players love them. You know, James Urban is probably doing a lot to keep Lamar personally focused. That's everything I've seen so far. But what I want to know is that those positional coaches have the same kind of uh, determination to keep them doing their regular film study, making sure everybody's doing their lifting and not cheating on that. You know, to, to do all of the things that they need to do to stay the biggest, the strongest, the fastest, the smartest as they go through this. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a very difficult thing. It's one of the reasons why it's so hard to repeat is you kind of get into an off season, you fall out of some of the, the habits you, you get because there's so many other opportunities to do things for free or to get some money to do them or, you know, go on the banquet circuit or whatever, or accept awards, whatever it might be, be on the cover of Madden. Uh, it's very it's very difficult to, to repeat, but to lose focus during the middle of the year would be even more dangerous for this team at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think you're spot on with that. Uh, and it's interesting uh, that you mentioned it because I was listening to by all for, you know, for whatever reason, a basketball uh, podcast that Bill Simmons uh, does. And he had um, the Golden State Warriors head coach on uh, Steve Kerr. And, you know, they were just talking about how good that team has been over the last couple of years. And, you know, they've won championships and how hard it is to sort of keep that level of motivation and that level of sort of execution that you want everybody to stay at when you've had so much success. And and one of the quotes that uh, Steve Kerr mentioned was something from Bill Russell, you know, played for the Celtics, won all those championships. Mm-hmm. Well, Bill Russell basically echoed what you just said. He said, it's, it's so much harder to maintain that focus and that attention to detail after you win a championship. He said, actually, when you're, when you haven't won and it's the pursuit 
of trying to win a championship because it's not that hard at that point to get guys, you know, to buy in and, and, and to really, you know, lock in and, and, and get concentrated on what they need to do. But after they win, then, you know, it's easy for people to lose focus, feel like they've arrived and, and, and start sort of looking at things from a more individual perspective. I'm, I was looking at another thing today and looking up and down this organization this is now the NFL's model franchise, in my opinion. I think the torch has been passed from the Patriots to the Ravens. Obviously, the playoffs will be another chance for the Patriots to steal it back. But the Patriots now have the model front office, I think, with DaCosta now fully in charge with what he's accomplished this year. He deserves to be executive of the year, in my opinion. They've kept Ozzy in the fold for all of the wisdom that that brings and probably has continued to bring to the draft. They have uh, got... Three coaches, a head coach who's at the top of his game, coaching better than he ever has before, and two coordinators who are the best two at one time the Ravens have ever had. That's for sure at a minimum. They might be the best two coordinators the Ravens have ever had. And then – go ahead. No, I was, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. It just – yeah, I, I was just going to say it's, it's all the right moves. It's an all-the-right-move situation. You just – you know, everything that the front office has done, everything that the coaching staff has done uh, – it's all worked, you know. I mean, you can look back at at sort of the defensive struggles in the early part of the season, uh, and say, well, maybe everything didn't work. But you got to look at the other side of that and that how quickly they recognized Fixed what it. wasn't working, yeah, and what they needed to do to improve and where they needed to improve. And it's one thing to say, well, we're going to look at the roster, we're going to evaluate it, and then we're going to see where maybe we're we're a little weak and we're going to try to to acquire guys and improve. Okay, yeah, everybody does that. Every GM does that. But to actually get the guys and then to actually uh, you know, achieve that improvement, that's the part that really impresses me because it's like these other GMs are sitting back twiddling their thumbs, you know, when they've got, you know, holes on their roster or areas of weakness. They're trying to do the same thing. But it doesn't always work. But it's worked uh, this year in, in almost every way that you can think of for the Ravens. Yeah, a re- relay race there between at least three. The, 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 you know, DaCosta to go out and identify the talents that they wanted to get. In the case of the street free agents, I'm, I'm, in some ways I'm more impressed with who they picked, who they selected from that group. And I know the coaches have a, have a part in this too, but they've, they picked basically these, these talented street guys. Then they bring them in, and the coordinators have seamlessly woven these guys without fear into the, into the uh, uh, game plan. And, you know, people like Bynes and Ford immediately took over lead roles on the defense. And, and you know, most recently, Pecco and Ellis are eating up tons of snaps and, and, and as soon as they're acquired. You know, Jihad Ward has been a huge part of this pass rush down the stretch to get it going. I mean, they've, everybody they've got. So anyway, they moved the coordinators then and then the players themselves. And let's include Peters and, and the, the, you know, the value he's brought. It's all been done at incredibly inexpensive levels. Everybody they acquired was cheap as hell. The only guy who has any real cap cost to him at all is Peters. And Peters was cheap as hell in terms of draft capital to acquire. So just, I could not imagine them acquiring more talent for less, putting it in play quicker and having all that talent, you know, be hungry enough to really produce at a level that frankly is unexpected for every single one of them. Yeah. And so all of those moves that you just talked about and how well all of that has, you know, played out to the, to, you know, to this point in the season and it almost overshadows some of the stuff that they did in the offseason. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we don't even really talk about Earl Thomas anymore. I mean, you you pick mm-hmm. up, you know, a guy who's probably a future Hall of Fame, you know, safety. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, so it just 
again, I, all the right moves just keeps coming to mind for me. It's just like everything, uh, every button that that they've been pushing um, throughout this season uh, has worked. And yep. I, I, I think, you know, the sort of cynical fan in me is kind of, well, well, wait, this can't last forever. You know, it's just it's just one of those things where you kind of have to to adjust your mentality, right? You don't you want to let yourself have nice things on offense when you're a Ravens fan. So <laughs> this is this is this is kind of a, a paradigm shift uh, for, for a lot of us, I think. Yeah, I, I, the the other point I want to make about the model franchise, because I got halfway through it, the front office is at the top of this game, the coaching, the coordinators at the top of this game, the players on both sides are at the top of those games. And for the first time since 1975, basically, or since the mid-70s with Burt Jones, Baltimore has the hot young quarterback in the league, the hot quarterback period in the league. And those were all the things that separated the Patriots from every other team for the last 20 years, basically, in terms of them being the yardstick franchise. And I really think, you know, the Ravens have always had individual components of it now, but I honestly believe the torch has now been passed and people are going to start saying next year, you haven't beaten the Ravens yet. So you really haven't done anything. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, it definitely looks that way uh, through through this point in the season. I totally agree with you. It definitely looks like that torch has been passed. But, man, if if it's hard to almost allow yourself to even think about it this way. But if they could get on anywhere near the kind of run, give me, give me 60, 70 percent of the run that the Patriots have had with Belichick and Brady, I'll take it. Oh, me too. Let's go on and talk some packages, some actual football instead of this fantasy stuff we're talking about right now, which is which is fabulous and real, but uh, but uh, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. They only played 47 defensive snaps in this game. So we're going to talk a little bit about packages. The base package, they did not use a single time in this game. Not completely a surprise given who the Rams are. Uh, that has become a package now. They've only used a very limited number of times all the season. I think it's 37 snaps they've done of base in what, 11 games now. So using it about three times a game. I might be wrong on that. Maybe even less than that. But anyway, it's become the package that they bring in when the opponent puts a sixth offensive lineman on the field. Otherwise, they don't play three defensive linemen anymore. Which makes sense. Um, like you said, just if you if you look back at um, sort, of the, sort of where the rest of the league has gone offensively in terms of personnel, it's an 11 personnel league by and large. Uh, the Rams... Interestingly enough, I guess up up until that Chicago game um, two weeks ago, where I think they they use sort of uh, more of an extra tight end, uh, more two tight end sets than than what they had before. I think they used to be, if I'm not mistaken, one of the highest uh, eleven personnel uh, teams in terms of of usage percentage in the league, maybe the highest. Um, so it makes makes you know a ton of sense that you wouldn't see. Uh, a ton of base against this specific team. And then, like I said, just really where the, the rest of the league has been going offensively too. It, it, it sort of makes sense from a broader perspective as well. Okay. So we mentioned zero snaps of base, but they only had 17 snaps of nickel in this game, 17 out of 47. The big news there was that, that peanut went back in and was the will linebacker on every single one of those snaps. So all of their nickel snaps were binds as the mic and Peanut at the will. And the significance of that was the previous week, he sat out a little over half the game consecutively in the middle. In fact, he had a nine-yard sack. Then he came out of the game, and he didn't return until the very final series. And there was some talk around going, oh, no, we were playing a lot of dime and whatnot. Well, that wasn't exactly true. They played seven snaps of nickel during the time where he's out, and every one of those seven was Bynes and Fort. So I was wondering, had, had Owasso actually lost his job during this period? 
but they made it very apparent this game, at least, that Fort was back to being a linebacker who was on when the dime was on with him. So the sole inside linebacker on the field with the dime. So anyway, an unusual circumstance, and and Peanut came back. Uh, didn't do anything really exceptional in this game, but uh, but it was good to see him back with a with a very clearly defined role this game. Yeah, I was wondering about that too because I, like you just uh, just just pointed out, I noted that you know he was in the game more um, you know against the Rams than he was against the Texans, and I wonder if it's uh, that they just have very specific packages that they mm-hmm. want to use him in. I mean, obviously, I think they they cross train their linebackers at that nickel spot, and, and guys can kind of kind of overlap and, and do similar things. But I think you know we learned the early part of this season with Peanut at the mic, and how that that really kind of didn't work out. That he's really good at some specific things. He's a mm-hmm. good blitzer. Uh, he's a good sort of give him a give him a one gap you know, sort of, uh, sort of assignment and just let him attack a gap, you know, um, maybe you don't necessarily want to have him in a read and react situation or, or even a coverage situation. So maybe they've come up with sort of a pattern of splitting those reps in the nickel between peanut and Ford and saying, okay, when Ford's in, he's going to do these things. And when peanuts in, he's going to do the other things that he's better at. So um, maybe, maybe there's some of that going on. Obviously, we we don't know because we're not we're not in the in the meeting rooms or, or anything like that. But it just I kind of wondered the same way you did, like what was going on there. But you're, what you're talking about is already a drastic reduction in role for Peanut because he played 17 snaps in this game out of 47 defensively, and I don't know exactly what kind of percentage that is, but slightly over 33, so maybe 38, something like that. Last year he played 42 percent of the snaps, but anytime you define a guy as he can only have a portion of those will snaps that are not dime snaps because the dime backer otherwise, you know, replaces peanut because you know, peanuts not going to move back to Mike. Okay. So it already drastically reduces what there is for him. So, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see where, what happens to peanut in this off season, whether the Ravens try and figure out how to keep him, uh, you know, sign him maybe for a couple of years or, or if another team wants him more, they, uh, they make an effort on him, but it'll be interesting. It'll be an interesting offseason, a, a free agency opportunity for Peanut to make a few bucks. Yeah. So let's go back onto the dime here. They used that 26 times in this game. Uh, that was Carr at safely, safety, mostly deep, which is their new real version of the dime. It's kind of like a four corner dime. I was calling it initially, but it's really it's Carr playing a deep safety with limited dime usage of Carr. They never actually move him up into that dime spot like an inside linebacker role, but they sometimes move him up to the edge of the formation, rush the passer from there and do other things you might do with a free safety or a strong safety who's roaming the box. Yeah. And that, that I think has really added some flexibility uh, to, to what they want to do on defense uh, with Carr being able to take some of those deep safety snaps because um, it does a couple of things. Obviously it allows Chuck Clark to play closer to the line of scrimmage um, you know, I, I think he's a better player there. That, that's not to say that he can't play deep, but I think he's a more effective player uh, closer to the line of scrimmage. Obviously, there's a communication issue with him being, uh, you know, closer to the line of scrimmage as opposed to, to dropping back to the deep middle or out to the deep half. And when and you then, say that, you mean a communication valued in being closer to getting the play relayed more quickly. Yes. Yeah, I shouldn't frame it as a problem. It's certainly not a problem. It's an advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right on that. And then, you know, also you you get uh, another coverage defender playing that safety role, a cornerback, 
you know, for, for, for the bulk of his career, who, you know, probably is going to have a, uh, some advantage in terms of, of coverage skills as opposed to, you know, the guy who's probably been more of a true safety uh, for most of his career. So, um, you know, I think he just him being able to sort of transition more into that role, uh, along with a lot of other things that Wink does on defense, just makes them so flexible and so multiple on defense. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. They use the dime every single snap of the second half. They never they never got out of it. So uh, they never really had to change. Obviously, the, the this is an interesting fact that the Rams ran the ball for a loss of one with 1227 left in the second quarter. The remainder of the game, with the exception of a kneel down at the end of the half, they ran the ball only once in the entire game. So they never had any reason for to switch out of the dime if the if the Rams are going to be throwing it and the Rams are trailing obviously significantly, then they they there wasn't a reason to do that. But what was interesting with it was for the last 18 alignments. Now that there were two penalties in there, so it's 16 snaps as I count them. They were in that modified race car package where they had one defensive lineman, four outside linebackers, all four guys were on the field every single play down the stretch and zero inside linebackers. And I thought what was really cool about that was that gave him a little laboratory, Martindale I'm talking about now, to try different things with that package that he hadn't done before. And that we'll get to a lot of that in the pass rush. I want to do it. But I thought just from a package perspective, very interesting that they would do that. Yeah, and then you make a great point about it kind of serving as a laboratory. I mean, you, to to get that kind of a lead and be in that situation where you you essentially made the other team one-dimensional. Oh, it's happened a couple times this year, but it doesn't <laughs> doesn't happen a ton uh, typically throughout the course of, of, of most seasons. And so now you get a chance to really kind of, uh, you know, use some different pressure concepts, uh, you know, some things that maybe you've been working on in practice and you just haven't had the opportunity to use them in other games because it's been closer and the other team has still, you know, had had, you know, some desire to want to run the ball. But this was just, you know, that perfect laboratory environment, like you described it, to to say, hey, let's 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 throw some of this stuff out there, and uh, and and see how effective it is. There you go. So anyway, four snaps of quarter package that was all in the first half, and and when they had the quarter, they brought Levine in to do that. So, uh, uh, you know that, uh, you know, is just not that big a part. The one guy who's lost some playing time in this is Levine. Uh, I haven't heard anything from him, which is good. Uh, but he's certainly, you know, Carr basically has taken his spot effectively at deep safety by moving Clark up. I think it does give the Ravens their strongest defensive look. I didn't think this was the way that must necessarily work out, given how effective Levine was in 2018. But, uh, you know, they're also playing a little bit of quarter. They're still getting him on the field some, just not nearly as much as last year. Yeah, and that's that's another thing that I've, I've noticed. Um, you know, obviously this year he hasn't he hasn't played uh as many defensive snaps certainly um you know in, in the more recent games i i can't say that i know off the top of my head what it looked like in the early games um but it's got to be tough you know that's got to be tough for him for a guy who was primarily a core special teamer up until what would you say kid maybe the last Seven. two years well 16 he played about 50 snaps 17 then and 18 were his big years where we played more like 26 to 28 percent of the snaps and then last year, he had the greatest season ever as a, of any dime defender in Ravens history, which I made the point a couple of times. But it, it, it really bears noting the Ravens have had a very strong lineage of great dime bags, dime bags going way back, including you know Chad Williams and Corey Harris and Haruki Nakamura, but guys who were the third safety playing in that dime package. And Levine's 2018 was head and shoulders above all the years turned in before him. Yeah, so it's got to be tough, right, to, to lose – um, you know, those snaps when you, you, you know, you had 
the the number of snaps that he was playing last year, but also you know the the level of play that you just mentioned that he was he was playing at. It's got to be tough, but you know when you're winning games, um, you know sometimes you know players are are willing to sort of bite their tongues a little bit about certain things. And I'm not saying that he's doing that. He may be totally fine with everything that's going on. He might not have any kind of disgruntled men about it or anything. But, you know, we, we know that these guys uh, want to be out there and, and, and want to contribute in different ways. And, you know, sometimes there's contractual elements to it as well, you know, in terms of incentives and stuff. So all that factors into it. But when you're winning, hey, you know, sometimes you, you, you're like, hey, I, I'm not going to be the one to, to rock the boat here because uh, this, this is uh, some smooth sailing right now. Right, there you go. Uh, huge game for the rushing on both sides of the football. They held the Rams to 22 rushing yards. We've been through a little bit of that. We can talk a little bit more. 285 yards rushing. I mean, we're at the game, and, and you get a nice update on the scoreboards in L.A. of, of what's uh, what's going on. And we saw they were up to 288 with a you know a drive still left and was hoping even that was even before the kneel-down drive. And we're just hoping they'd, uh, they'd push it over 300. They didn't, did not get it done. But... Uh, Boy, I don't know that I've ever seen that before. <laughs> no, and and I don't know. You you probably know better than me. I don't know where they're at in terms of rushing yards average per game, but it's got to be near two hundred per game, right? Yeah, they're over two hundred per game. They're on over pace. <laughs> they're on pace to beat the seventy-eight Patriots, who had thirty-one sixty-five. That's what one ninety-seven per game um, in nineteen seventy-eight. In seventy-eight, yeah. But anyway, yeah, and- go ahead. Yeah, so no, just, just think about that, right? So obviously there's a there's a historic context to that because you're you're talking about you know that 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 record being set back in '78, but then also just think about the context of and we kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier. You know, the, the league is probably by and large what a, a sixty to seventy percent passing league. Oh yeah, you know? and and so think about what they're doing, uh, and and it's something that I mentioned on Twitter earlier this week. I said if it's People talk about zagging when other teams zig. I mean, you can call it whatever you want, but it really just logically makes sense. If you look at how the league has transitioned to a passing league uh, over you know whatever time period that's been, everything about that is is what the Ravens are able to counter, right? So you yep. you so you're you're building your roster. Um, to rush the passer, right? Because you're going to be defending pass more often. You're 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 stacking your secondary with coverage guys. Even your linebackers, your level two guys, you know, or maybe more linebacker safety hybrid type guys, because you're looking for more coverage. So everything is about coverage and defending the pass. And now you get this team that wants to line up with two tight ends, three tight ends, a 300 pound fullback, a quarterback yep. who's the most dynamic runner in the league, maybe at any position. And, and, and can freeze your edge defenders and force you to play those one-on-two matchups on the inside. Right. So just, just you know, just tactically, you, most teams now, their rosters on defense are not built to handle what the Ravens employ. You just physically aren't built to handle it. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's uh, who knows how long uh, <laughs> it can last because as the pendulum swings, right, it, it swung to where it is now. It hasn't always been this way. You know, the team, obvi- uh, the, the league was obviously a more run-heavy league in years past, and, and, and defenses were built that way. I mean, you could, I always remember LeVon Kirkland, the old Pittsburgh Steelers, like a 270-pound linebacker. Um, so, you know, the, the pendulum may eventually swing back the other way, but right now, you know, the Ravens are, it's it's like being on the, the, the right part of a, a housing boom, right? You're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're kind of outpacing the market because you're getting a jump on it and, and, and the rest of the league hasn't countered um, in, in terms of how roster construction to what you're doing on offense. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. Could not agree more with what you said. Don't need to expand on it at all. In, but in the in the in this game, I thought there were a number of reasons that were really interesting why the Ravens were able to pile up this advantage. And when I go down through it, Pecco and Ellis come to mind as something, but they were hardly. I mean, they they contributed a little bit by being in there for snaps, but they were more of a threat to stop the run than actual run stoppers themselves. In fact, Ellis was on the field. There were no run plays when he was on the field. Zero on, on his ten snaps. You know. They, they only had one good run the entire game. It was one 15-yard run by Gurley accounted for, what, two-thirds of their total rushing yards. So that wasn't much. Gurley, by the way, is not the same back he used to be. He did have a big carry game in the previous game against the Bears, but he's having a bad year, and he's, he's been uh, only at four yards per carry or more in three games so far this year. Yeah, and, and look, obviously, you know, some of the, the uh, replacements they have at – uh, on the, along their offensive line certainly contributes to that. But you're right. He's, he's just not the same guy. And and people have used the NBA analogy. Is it load management? You know, are they saving him for later in the season? I don't know if I buy that. I, I think, um, you know, there, there's been the rumors and maybe it's more maybe it's more than rumor about having, you know, an arthritic knee condition, a degenerative kind of condition there. And um, you can just see it when he runs the ball. You know, he's, he just you don't see the same burst. You don't see the same explosiveness. Um you don't see the same violence, you know, in, in terms of running through contact. Uh, and so it's it's kind of disappointing for me just because, you know, I was a big fan of the guy uh, and, and and you kind of hate to see it uh, just from that kind of selfish perspective. But obviously, as a Ravens fan, I was very happy with how things went. Um, but you, to your point, yeah, he's he's just not the same guy. And, and obviously with the score uh, where it got to in this game, they, they simply just had to abandon the run, really. Well, if you want to think about it, really, from a selfish perspective, Todd Gurley's contract is one of the reasons the Ravens may have Marcus Peters. They had to mm-hmm. unload cap space. There weren't a lot of choices. You know, the the, the Rams have, are in one of the worst positions in the entire league in terms of their very top-heavy roster. Their five, top five contracts are over $100 million total. They have almost no flexibility in terms of cutting those people uh, in, in the immediate future in terms of what they gain from it. It's just, they're in a very bad situation with that. And that, that situation is what made them cut a valuable player like Peters, not cut him, but trade him for less than his value was to the Ravens to make cap space. That's a good point. I did not think about that, uh, that how, how those two things really, uh, really do correlate well. Um, and, and Peter's, you know, you can talk about the pick sixes and the interceptions, and 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 obviously those are very valuable. And you can even look at some of the things that he does when he's not targeted, just in terms of positioning and and the kind of things he can do to kind of take routes away. But I just think this is this is so much the perfect fit for him in yes. this system, because if you go back and you look at Wade Phillips in L.A., doesn't blitz a ton, you know, um, you know, we'll play some man coverage, but he he kind of he kind of plays more zone. I think with the Rams, if you go back to think when he was with Denver and they had three really good cornerbacks, I think he probably would Tlaib and Chris Harris and, and, and Roby. And I think they probably played a little more man there. Plus they had Von Miller. So you, you're going to want to play man when you can get after guys like that. Up front. But I think what happens for a guy like Peters, who is a risk taker, right? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's not, let's not Great gloss gambler. over that. He is. Yeah. And, and, and I, I like to say risk because I think they're calculated risk. I think that he's a big time film studier. Uh, he's a son of a coach. I know I've mentioned that before. I think he's a really intelligent player. And so I think when he takes a risk, it's a calculated risk. But sometimes you're going to be wrong, right? I mean, that's just the nature of the game. The offensive guys get paid too. The offensive coaches get paid too. So sometimes you're going to be wrong. 
But if you don't have the added elements of pressure, uh, whether that's from individual guys winning, uh, you know, individual situations or bringing blitz numbers, and you don't play the style of sort of matchup help defense that the Ravens play, because they really are. When you look at their their coverage outside of when they play man, and even when they play man, they are pretty, I think, the closest thing to like an NBA analogy. You think about like a Jim Bayhive in the old Syracuse days, that matchup mm-hmm. zone. They are a matchup zone help defense. And so when you add in pressure, right, whether that's by numbers or individuals, when you add in help uh, in, in the secondary, you can take those calculated risks. And you're typically, I think he's right more than he's wrong anyway. But if you're wrong, it's not going to look as bad as it's looked in LA and as it looked in KC because they didn't play, uh, you know, the same kind of system in terms of help and the same kind of systems in terms of pressure. So the ball's not coming out as quickly. And so if he gets beat over the top, it looks really bad, but that's not going to happen as often in this system just because of the way it's constructed. All right. It won't, it won't happen, happen as often. He has a very good understanding of the defense. And he, yeah, I know we haven't talked about this yet, but the, the pick six he had was against Cincinnati, right? The pick six, it was Erickson, <laughs> Who, who ran their out? So anyway, he also had a pick six against Seattle. I know, but the the one against Cincinnati, the first one was a complete bait job. He moved back, then he then he he broke on the ball before it was even thrown by Wilson for the pick six. Great job. The second one was a complete gamble. But but I did some math in my article about that. Love to have you critique that, Michael. But I think he only needed to be right about twenty percent of the time to make that worthwhile, given the position they were on the field, the expected points the Bengals already had coming out of that drive. And then the the points that the Ravens actually got by him to getting the pick six, um, he really had 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 only be right a small percentage of the time. And he had also going for him that he was undercutting a route, giving up the chance that Erickson would make a double move and, and beat him for a touchdown. There wasn't help in that particular play, but they also had a seven man pass rush. So you know that ball's got to be out quickly. It's a young quarterback who's already in a panicky audible at the line of scrimmage. It's just, it was the perfect spot for him to make that gamble. And it was all those things I think put together and maybe others that, that I can't think of that, that made him willing to make that gamble and, and made it work. Yeah. And he just, he, he processes information at such a high level. I think I tweeted once, he, he reminds me kind of like Sherlock Holmes, right? He's got this great deductive ability where He'll look at the things that you just mentioned. Hey, I know we've got a seven-man pressure on, so the ball's got to come out quick. I looked at the receiver, and I looked at him cut down his split, and then he motions back into the formation. And we're already into the boundary, so the smaller side of the field. There's only so many routes he can run. Mm -hmm. So now I'm reading the quarterback and keeping the wide receiver in my periphery because I'm in off coverage. As soon as I see that three-step drop, I know that ball's coming out, and I know that receiver is not running deep. And he's not running across the middle because I can see, him. you know, I've kind of got a periphery view. Of it. So I can break on that route. Right. Because I've, I've deducted, you know, from process of elimination that it can't be this. It can't be that. It can't be that. It's probably going to be this. I could be wrong, but it's probably going to be that. And like you said, the math probably definitely supports that. Mm-hmm. And so he goes ahead and makes that play. You saw it in the Rams game, too. On that series where he got the interception, a couple of plays, I think it was actually seven beat. before. Yeah. yeah. And it was the same route. Right. It was it was that smash concept that sort of high low where you've got a fade or a hitch underneath and then you've got a deep corner route over the top. And so the quarterback's just reading that cornerback. Right. If he sits on the hitch, he's going to throw the corner, which he did on that previous play to Robert Woods. The later play. Now, they're in a different part of the field, so there's not as much depth between that shallow uh, flat route and the corner. But Peters has seen it. 
you're looking at a very kind of similar thing in terms of formation. And he can now sink to get a little bit more depth underneath that corner route and just pick it off, right? I mean, you just, mm-hmm. <laughs> as intelligent as this guy is, you probably don't want to show him the same thing in the same defensive <laughs> sense. You know, that's yeah. probably going to be a bad idea. <laughs> well, lots, of, lots of positives on that. As the underneath guy there, he had help over the top. He actually had responsibility for a short receiver, which is the perfect decoy, by the way. You yeah. want the quarterback to think, yeah, he's got that guy. He can't get on that route. But Peters, more than any player I ever watched in terms of film, breaks off his own guy to go for the football wherever it is. I mean, I've seen him on a post route break away from the sideline early because he sees what's happening, you know, kind of thing. It's Ed Reed-like. Yeah. I think you talk, You and I talked about it before when we did the pod on Peters. It really is Ed Reed-like uh, in terms of he's going to see things that maybe nobody else sees on the field. Maybe the coaches don't even see it, but he sees it, and he's going to go after the ball. Let's go back to the running play because I want to go back to one more thing is that the, the 285 to 22, another reason this shows up is because of the nature of running the football in the NFL. So there's very few NFL teams that can actually generate positive expected points from running the football. The Ravens are one of them, and they lead the pack by a mile. So we think if anybody can run the ball like the Ravens, they ought to be running the ball. Well, nobody can run the ball like the Ravens because they've got Lamar Jackson, they've got all these other weapons, and they've got the tight ends, and they've got everything you know to run the ball the most effective level of any other team. But the very few teams can run with positive expectation. The Rams can't, and they got down early, which means that they really they can't. They would run if they if they were trying to control the pace of the game, but that wasn't that wasn't going to get them back in the game. They needed to get back in the game, and so they thought the no huddle is the way to do it. And they went to that. They tried that. That didn't really work out either. But they but it was their best chance to get back into the game early in that first half when they were already down fourteen nothing, fourteen three, twenty one three, and that in that sequence there. Uh, it, to try and get back in the game. But anyway, you know, there, part of it is the Ravens are really a good rush defense. But another part of it is really seeing is the Ravens offense is just too damn dominant for any other team to run against them for very long. Yeah, when you build the kind of lead that they built on offense, I mean, when you think about how efficient they were, on what was it? Was it four touchdowns or five touchdowns? Maybe it was six. I don't even remember. It <laughs> how many touchdowns? Six, six in a row with Lamar. So he he was never he was never stopped. In fact, he was ten of ten on third slash fourth down sequences. Meaning, well, obviously he scored every time, so you know he didn't fail one. But they they failed three third downs with him, but then they made them all up on fourth down, kind of like the rematch in boxing concept. So, yeah, you just you just effectively stop? take it away, right? When when you do that, when you're scoring touchdowns, not field goals, when you're scoring touchdowns at that level of efficiency. And the score becomes what it becomes. You effectively have taken uh, have taken the, the the option of running the ball away from the opponent. So yeah, the rush defense, uh, you know, has has been better. And and for all the reasons that you talked about, and picking up Pecco and picking up Ellis, why why Pierce is out. But when the team basically has to abandon it, well, that's obviously going to help you. All right. Outstanding. So I think we've beaten that topic to death, but it's a good discussion. And Michael, I've missed this with you is having a discussion kind of at this level about what's going on in football. I've really, uh, we've missed having you on the show. Let's go. It's, let's good, talk to to be, it's good to be back. It's fun. It's good to have you, my friend. So let's go to, let's go to the pass rush here. Um, so they gave up ample time and space on 13 of 41 dropbacks. I have the wrong percentage. Actually, I noticed in the notes here, that's about 31%, I believe. So 13 enter... 41 divided by, I'm going to do this right half, 
uh, ample time and space in the game. So that's good, about about nine or ten points below where where the Ravens have been typically getting it. Um, they did it with both numbers and scheme in this game. So what I thought was really cool was to compare and contrast how Martindale created the game plan to deal with Watson last week, where they got seven sacks, and Goff this week, where they only got two sacks. But I think in each case, they were pretty much equally effective in terms of how they deployed the pass rush. Now, let me throw out my theory here, and I really want to hear you critique this when when, when we uh, when we do this. But they got seven sacks, obviously, against the Texans. What they did with Watson, his discomfort comes from containment. I kind of think of it as the old Star Wars trash compactor from that first movie where they're all going crazy as the walls are slowly creeping around them. And he ha- he developed an inability to keep his eyes downfield, and he was still unwilling to throw the football away, which led to a lot of these sacks. And so the, the game plan was slow pressure with containment, drive him nuts that way. With golf, it's different. He is bothered by any sort of color he sees, any uniform color is what I'm talking about, obviously, and deception and all of the things you can do to get quick pressure in his face or get somebody who's about to hit him, make him deliver the football quickly. At the end of the game, it led to some forced errors, which were nice, but move him quickly to force errors would really be the way I'd describe that game plan. Couldn't agree more, and that's a really great, uh, sort of way to contrast those things. And, and it's a it's a, a classic example, really, of why uh, of how sack numbers can be misleading, right? In terms of how you judge the overall quality of um, you know a pass rush. So your goal is to affect the quarterback, right? And there are different ways to do that. And you just laid out too from from these these two different games. So the way to affect Watson was to contain him, right? The way to affect uh, golf was like you said, to get color in his face. I mean, the one thing that you could really kind of see consistently throughout that game is just how frenetic he becomes with even the threat of pressure. He just speeds up. Everything speeds up. The pacing of his drop is faster. He goes through his reads more quickly. He doesn't maybe hang on a read as long as he he should to allow the rate to, uh, to allow the route to come open. Everything speeds up. And so he misses things. They're unforced errors. And, you know, one of the things that the Ravens do um, under Wink, as well as any team in the league, is these simulated pressures. I know you and I have talked about it before, mm-hmm. and, you know, they, they kind of have a cool name, right? People call them creepers. Uh, so you have all these guys up around the line of scrimmage. And so it's not so much about overloading protection. While you can certainly use that, right? That's a tool in the tool. Mm-hmm. So if you say you've got three pass protectors on the right side of the line and you want to bring four defenders, right? You're going to bring one more guy than they can block unless they slide somebody over or back or something like that, right? So you're overloading. But they can pretty much see that, right? The offensive line, just by where people are positioned, they can kind of see, hey, we, we don't have enough bodies over here. But with these simulated pressures, you're attacking and you're stressing, right? It's more about stress, really. I should use that. That's a more accurate word than, than attack. You're stressing the protection. And you could see it in the Texans game, and you could see it in this game. When you have young or inexperienced offensive linemen, this begins to take a toll on them, right? And they start to expect pressure to come from certain places, and they make line calls and adjustments to try to react to that pressure. And then it doesn't come from there, and now they're out of position to actually protect against where the pressure is actually coming from. And you saw that in a couple of plays in the Texans game where it looked like guys were just coming, you know, scot-free 
and you know uh, left guard and, and left tackle aren't blocking anybody. And you're like, wait a minute, why, why, why is this a screenplay? Why are they just letting these guys run by? Well, they're expecting pressure to come from a totally different area than where it came from. And you saw it in this game with golf at times where, you know, I, I remember the play where Judon comes free, I think, between the, the uh, left guard and the center, right? And he just has to get the ball out. And he gets it out, but he takes a hit and it's an incompletion. But, you know, that guy's wide open and Todd Gurley is in the backfield, so they have enough bodies to account for Judon. But Gurley's looking somewhere else, you know? <laughs> and the left guard in the center and the left tackle are accounting for other guys. And you can do these things, and you don't have to bring five and six every time. That's, Sometimes you can bring four. Right? That's exactly, exactly it. Is basically, you know, we hear all the definition of blitz commonly used in the national media or in the, in the analytic media even is a five plus man pass rush, but it ain't all about numbers. It's really about deception. And the simulated pressures come out in the, in the stuff that I log in terms of two man drops. Now they do one man drops as well. I just don't consider them deceptive enough in and of themselves to create that overload situation. So it's really the two man drops that I, that I focus on in this game. The Ravens used 26 individual blitzers from off the line of scrimmage, season high. They ran five stunts, a second element of deception, and they had 10 two-man drops. So that's that simulated pressure angle you're talking about of really dropping them off the line of scrimmage. You don't know where the Ravens are coming from in that way. 11 total deceptive blitzes that had two or more of those elements in them. So they're, they're laid out in the article. I'd encourage people to go through. Take a look at the film on those plays. They're all time-stamped. You can go to your Game Pass subscription, take a look at it. I hope you will uh, to really see how they're, they're they're setting up the pressure. And they were very effective on those deceptive blitzes of those eleven plays. The, the Rams gained forty four yards, had two sacks, and threw an interception. So it, it was an unqualified success in terms of the the uh, deception they used against golf. Absolutely. Just I mean, like you said, I I, I would encourage people too to go back and, and look at the timestamps and, and go on Game Pass and actually check those plays out. But just think about the sack that Jimmy Smith got, right? How, how often do you see a double cornerback blitz? <laughs> you know, I mean it's just rare. I, I looked this up and I, I'm using PFF's numbers here, so I appreciate this. Even though this is outside the limits of my subscription of PFF, I will I will give this one number away that you're supposed to have a subscription to say. Jimmy Smith is in his entire career has rushed the passer. 10 times. Okay. So think of it. Now he's an outside corner and he plays virtually exclusively outside corner. The Ravens, you know, in their history have blitzed a ton off the slot position, but I would say 97% of their corner blitzes, maybe more have been off the slot and not off the edge. Okay. In this, in this particular play, this is about the biggest, most ballsy play I've ever seen from any defensive coordinator. It out Ryan's Rex Ryan in terms of bringing two outside corners, Peters and Smith, on the same play. And I, I can never recall a separate instance of occurring. And I've charted every pass rush in Ravens history. And I, I'm not saying it never did happen, because I can't make that statement. But I will say I can never recall it happening, because because outside rushes are so rare. Yeah, and it goes back to what we were just talking about. It goes back to stressing protection and affecting the quarterback. So now that happens, and now that's in golf's head. That's in McVay's head. They're probably thinking, what the hell, man? Who sends both corners, both outside <laughs> corners like that? We, we, you don't see that. People don't do that. And so now that's just another thing on the laundry list of things you've got to think about in terms of your protection um, for the O-line and for golf. 
And then, like you said, you you get into the second half of this game in that laboratory environment. So now you've got this thing that happened earlier in the game, and now there's all these other things being unleashed on you in the second half. And it just, again, it just takes that mental toll on the offensive line and the quarterback. And it it it's just like, you know, chipping away at a dam, right? Just slowly, slowly, slowly. And that the water starts to get through a little bit more, a little bit more, and the pressure builds, and eventually it just bursts. Jeremy Kahn made a really good point on air today about this, and he said it might be more successful to do that when the quarterback is relying on play action because he's going to turn his back to the field and yeah. give you that extra second for it to develop. He's absolutely right in the way, by the way, because you're going to then he has to reacquire and process the fact that it's no longer an outside corner or covering. Maybe it's a safety or maybe it's even a linebacker covering that outside receiver. But, uh, you know, it's an interesting point to be made. And. If anything, now, advanced scouts are going to see this in the next few weeks. They're going to see, you know, Martindale is a madman. He, he might do anything to us. He's the joker basically coming into play us. And you got to think about whether or not you really want to take take risks with play action. Can you take time for the play to develop? Now, normally, I'd say the, the Ravens' pass rush is not good enough individually in winning one-on-one matchups to be really make play action teams fearful of what they can do. But this is the kind of thing that might add to that. Yeah, ton of credit to Wink for that call because – I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think the Rams in golf are, if they're not um, at the highest you know, number in terms of percentage use of play action, they're right there uh, near the top of the league. And so coming into the game, you know that, right? You know that they want to run uh, their passing game primarily off of play action. And so to your point, um, you know, when they want to do that, hey, let's shoot both. Let, let, let's fire both corners at him. Uh, he's got his turn. He's got to turn his back to one side or the other. And the guy who's coming from that side that, you know, he doesn't see is going to have a chance if there's uh, nobody there to pick him up. Yeah, good point. Because if it's a play action boot, normally you have to beat that edge defender on the boot side. But if you get that second defender in the back, that almost always blows up the play. Yeah. So it's a it's a cool opportunity. I want to talk one more time, one just briefly about the numbers as well. The Ravens rushed two to four. And actually, they rushed two in one, one play in this game to 22 plays, 169 yards, 7.7 yards per play. So with lower numbers, the Rams actually had some success with five. They ran 13, 13 rushes of that sort, 37 yards, 2.7 per play, one sack, both interceptions. I think we'll take that. Yep. And then with six plus four plays for minus eight yards, one sack in there and three incompletions. So, uh, more numbers was better. They really got paid off for the numbers they rushed in uh, in spades in this one. Again, all the right moves, man. It was all working. Uh, <laughs> whether it was numbers, whether it was deception, you know, whatever they were dialing up, uh, everything was effective. All right. Uh, you know, the only other thing that I wanted to kind of talk about in terms of pass rush was the what they did with Judon in this because they had him rushing from a standard. I, uh, you know, standing ILB spot a lot in this game. It seemed like to me that's a great opportunity against a non-cohesive offensive line. These guys haven't played together at their current spots for very much to create some change of responsibilities on the fly that they'll have to deal with. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that too, and uh, I think even that play that I mentioned where he, I don't know if he started off. He may have started off the ball and he kind of crept up to the line where he kind of split between the the center and the left guard. But yeah, there were a couple times where he was clearly off the ball. You know, he's maybe three or four yards off the ball, kind of around you know that that center to guard to guard area. And you see, um, you know, other teams do that. But one that came to my mind was a uh, Clowney when he was with the Texans, right? They do that mm-hmm. with him a lot. And obviously, he's a super explosive dude. So when you move him around like that, and like you said, make the protection sort of account on the fly for where he's going to go, 
Um, number one, he's just a freak athlete. So that's going to give you problems right off the top. But then two, um, you know, you're having to make adjustments uh, on on the fly. And, and those two things are typically not a good uh, combination for the offensive line. You've got a freak explosive athlete, uh, athlete coming uh, at you. Um, you know, with a head, with a running head start, and you've got to try to figure out. Well, wait a minute, pre-snap, I was going to block this guy, but now he's not here, and now you know who's going to mm-hmm. deal with this guy who's you know splitting the a gap. You know, so mm-hmm. it's uh, it, it was just another element uh, that that Wink dialed up, and, and and it worked. Very cool, very cool. How about we talk about some individual performances? Any, uh, let you bring up the first name. We'll just kind of alternate from there. Yeah, I I. Uh, I got to cheat a little bit because I, I saw your pre-show notes. So uh, I'm going to try to play off with that because I'm in agreement with all of your guys. So I'm going to throw out some other guys, maybe a little bit lesser uh, in terms of their, uh, their contribution. But Jihad Ward uh, was a guy for me who I thought, um, you know, was effective uh, on some of his past rushes. And, you know, it was just individual rushes too. It wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. about, you know, being schemed uh, in an advantageous rush position. It's just lining up over a guy and having a pass rush plan and beating the guy. That's one of the things that I noticed when I kind of looked at a couple of games on him uh, right when they signed him is that, you know, are you going to say, you know, he's he's got, you know, super athleticism or explosiveness or anything like that? No, not necessarily. But he always seemed to have a pass, ru- a, a pass rush plan, right? He knew what he wanted to do, and he had a counter in mind for, all right, I'm going to start with this move. If you counter it this way, here's how I'm going to counter it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and and I saw that on one of those rushes that he had where he's directly over the center, where um, the center and the left guard kind of were doing this all night where they wanted to quick set guys. Right. They just wanted to get their hand on as quick as possible, not take any steps backward, just immediately fire your hand and make contact with the guy. So he does that with Ward. Ward chops that hand down. And then he knows when you chop that hand, then the offensive lineman is immediately going to bring that opposite hand around, almost in a roundhouse kind of circular kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So he knows that that's coming. So he just rips under that. He's just anticipating Mm -hmm. that coming, and he just rips under it, and you get on the edge of the center, and you're able to get some quick penetration. So uh, I always am impressed with guys who have a a plan when they're pass rushing, and they're not just like, you know, running into guys, and, and then when they make contact, oh, what do I do now? Yeah, it was a great one. And he actually, he was credited with QH in the game book on that particular rush. I can see it visually now. But what he actually did is he kind of fell off the quarterback. And with all the problems the Ravens have had with quarterback hits turning into roughing the passers calls this this week, I was actually glad to see that. But then Judon came came late, and he was actually lying on the ground behind behind golf like you might if you were on a playground you want to push somebody over you know it's, it's horrible to think of this bullying but we both grew up with with knowing the technique at least whether or not we were employing it or being the victim uh, of of seeing people pushed over somebody else on uh, you know in, in that way and that's what happened i'm I, it was almost funny that judon did not get flagged for it but he picked up the qh officially i'm sure they'll they'll get that changed when they uh when they go back and look at it again but anyway it's the, it's the old charlie brown move right there you go <laughs> There you go. And uh, and uh, Ward uh, uh, also drew a holding call, which was another big one in this game. So that was, I think, that uh, wiped out a 12-yard play, if I recall correctly. All right, how about we move on? And I've got outside linebackers on my list, but but Bowser, I thought, is taking a, a, a step forward. Two quarterback hits in this game. Here's the thing I really loved about Bowser. He dropped from the line of scrimmage into coverage nine separate times. And he 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 shows up as in coverage on in, in PFF stuff a few more times. In fact, 12, 
I can't figure out exactly what they're coming from unless they come on penalties or they have a different definition or he started perhaps in level two, which might have happened. But anyway, nine times he dropped from the line of scrimmage into coverage. Despite that, he was never targeted in the game. Never once was he targeted. So that's really good news that he can provide that kind of flexibility and not end up being the guy who's dropping his responsibility uh, when he's getting there. So that's, it's a very positive element of his game, and I hope the, you know, the Ravens can take more advantage of that as time moves on. Yeah, that goes back to what we saw in his rookie year, right? I mean, that was that was kind of one of the one of the strengths of his game coming into the league was that he was he was pretty good in coverage, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from for an outside linebacker. Um, almost some thought uh, while he was at Houston that they almost did it too much, right? They didn't let him rush enough. Uh, they dropped him in coverage too much, but he's good at it. So mm-hmm. to your point, I'm, I'm I'm glad to to see him doing that as often as he did, and then not to be targeted. Um, Obviously, like you said, is, is, is a really good thing. And then I also like the fact that they were using him on some of those stunts that you mentioned. But there's nothing wrong with lining him up and letting just one-on-one pass rush. You're certainly going to do that. But I think he's actually a little bit more effective when you get him on the move uh, in terms of, of rush. So I, I'd like to see. Do you like uh, him inside to out or outside to in better? I think that I like him better inside. Uh, I'm sorry, outside to in. Mm-hmm. Um because I, I wonder about his ability to corner. So like if he starts inside and he goes outside and he has to wrap around somebody and then kind of turn that really tight corner and get back flat to the quarterback. I don't think he's great at that. I don't think he's super, you know, a super flexible sort of type of guy. Yeah. But I think if you can start him out outside and get him to come in, I think not to not, I'm going to use this analogy. So not, not to this extent, right. Not to the same extent as Zadarius, but I think he's good at getting on the edge of a guard and kind of winning on either the left or right edge. Darius was masterful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't think Bowser's nearly at that level, but I think he's better at that than having, you know, sort of trying to bend around the edge. Well, I'm going I'm to make the other argument for that is that outside in is more valuable to the Ravens because at least in terms of what apparently he can do, he gives you much more pass rush flexibility by his coverage flexibility when he's on the edge. If you leave him inside, yeah, he can drop into level two, but there's there's I, I think he gives you less opportunity to impact a route that goes quickly to the slot receiver if he's starting on the inside. True, true. Another player? Uh, okay, I'm going to pick, and this might be one that people don't necessarily think of, but Marlon Humphrey. Um, people might think about the penalty or they might think about you know some, some, some catches that he gave up. But one thing that I liked uh, – and you see this consistently with Marlon is just his physicality, right? When you look at some of those man uh, man coverage uh, matchups that he had with Cooper Cup, and he's just immediately jamming Cup in the chest right off the line of scrimmage, or like really riding him in those first five yards, and obviously on on some other guys a little bit beyond five yards. Uh, but he just <laughs> wants to set that tone, right, from the very you know start of the game. That look. This is going to be a physical battle. You're not just going to be running around here, scot-free through zones, uh, catching crossing routes, right, or, or, or going deep. You're going to get contact at the line of scrimmage and, and, and many times throughout your route. So even though he gave up some catches, even though he had a penalty, even though he had a couple of rushes where he got in and, and really had an opportunity to, to get a hit or a sack on golf, and golf was able kind of able to, to reverse out and avoid him. I just love his aggressive mentality. So for me, that that's always going to be something that um, that I'm a fan of. Yeah, he, even with that penalty, Cooper Cup was targeted ten times in this game, and he's the he's the Ravens' go-to. I'm sorry, the Rams' go-to receiver. 
six catches for 35 yards. So that's 3.5 yards per target that Humphrey basically came to because they went back to the shadow. They had Humphrey basically playing the slot receiver and shadowing that receiver. Peters always wants to play on the outside. And I think that's also true of Jimmy Smith. So basically I think they had, they had uh, Humphrey on the slot for almost every one of those cup routes. Yeah. And I think he's, I think we'll see. I mean, I've kind of seen it in the last two games. I think you saw it with the Texans game. This one might've been a little bit more, like you said, about trying to match up with cup, but I think wink is comfortable with him as the nickel. I think if he had his his preference, he wants to play sides with his cornerbacks. I don't think he wants to shadow. Right. Uh, I think he did it uh, because Jimmy was hurt, and then even when Jimmy came back, uh, you know there was still a little bit of it going on. But you're you're trying to let Jimmy get his sea legs and knock some rust off. And I think now that Jimmy's got a couple games under his belt, you're seeing that uh, a little bit more. And and when you think about it he's probably the most natural nickel on their team. Maybe you might want to see a guy with a little bit more lateral agility, but in terms of physicality, uh, you know, not just against receivers and, and different body types, but in terms of fitting runs and blitzing off the slide, he's got some work to do in terms of blitzing. I mean, obviously he's super fast, but I think some of his angles, um, you know, he, he's got to work on a little bit more, but it's understandable because, you know, how he was an outside corner. I mean, how much was he blitzing off the spot? But I think he's a good fit. And I, and I think, as they're currently constituted, I'm not saying you want him to be a career nickel, but as they're currently constituted, he probably the, the best fit for them at nickel right now. Yeah, he's he's in the middle now because the, the average size of corners is going up. And, and Marlon at 6'0", 195, 200, wherever he is, is now, I think that the six feet might be, you know, 57th percentile, 60th percentile of cornerbacks right now, whereas it used to be a very tall corner at six feet. Now it is, he is unusual tall, unusually tall for the nickel spot, but, but he is, uh, you know, he's not, he's not the tallest cornerback in the league by any stretch anymore with the, uh, with the plethora of six, one, six, two, six, three guys, even that are now out there. No, no, he's not. And, like I said, you know, you, you you probably see a little bit of a smaller guy in the slot, a little bit of a guy who's maybe a little bit more, you know, laterally agile and quick. But I think the way that um, Humphrey wins in the slot, it's different, but it's with physicality, right? Maybe he's not going to be that 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 Ladarius Webb type guy in the slot, but he's going to get into you right away. And that he's going to use that to try to negate any kind of lateral quickness advantage you might have over him. Yeah, there you go. I mean, I... I... I give Humphrey all the more credit for after his, you know, team MVP season to go in there and basically take a different role on this team on an as needed basis. You know, the loss of Tavon was horrible for this team next year. Hopefully he'll be back. He'll be good. And Marlon will be back on the outside. Uh, you know, in some role, I, I, I would anticipate it'll be him and Peters or him and Smith. One of the two uh, pairings, I would guess. And to, to, for him to do that for this year and play as well as he has, has just been remarkable. He still fully deserves a Pro Bowl berth for for what's happened. He really probably deserves to be all pro. I don't know if he's going to get that given how much he's moved around and how much he's disadvantaged from what he normally knows and maybe is best physically suited for. Totally agree. For me, uh, the voters maybe don't look at it this way or the coaches don't look at it this way. But for me, I think that makes him an even stronger candidate. Yes. What what he's had to do and the different roles he's had to play uh, in, in, in stream, right? In midstream as the season's gone on. Okay. How about we go on and we do the MVPs now? Are we good? Yep. Okay. You want to start with your number three guy? 
Uh, my guys are probably all going to be similar. We might have different order, uh, but I'll I'll start with um, I'll go Matt Judon. I'll save uh, one of my other guys. I'll go Matt Judon um, again. Just pressure, right? QB hits, uh, and <laughs> to me, one thing I like about Judon is, and I know sometimes it, it crosses that line in in terms of you know late hits on the QB and penalties, but. I just love his attitude. You know, I think he's hyper aggressive. He wants to hit the quarterback on every play, whether the ball's out or not. Uh, obviously, you got to be careful. You got to be smart. But I just love that mentality, right? That you want to set the tone. That look, uh, you're not. This isn't going to be seven on seven back there, right? You're going to get hit. You're going. You're going to feel my presence uh, in this game. It's been a big part of the Ravens' defense this year to basically make the quarterbacks feel quarterback hits, even when they're not being sacked. And obviously, the Ravens' sack total is not impressive. They've got, I think, still only 25 sacks the whole the whole season in 11 games. But it's about hitting the quarterback, and they, they're very near the top of the league in that, which is hard to do, by the way. That that exacta is very hard to hit when your sack total is real low because that's providing a number of your quarterback hits to have so many others. So anyway, uh, I, I would agree completely on the Judon pick. I, I have him at number two, so I'll just tell you who my number three guy is, Marcus Peters. I, I There were some things I didn't like. We talked about that earlier. But in terms of what he did in this game – uh, you know, he, he was very effective on that boundary. He gave up one play, immediately got it back. It's, I look at that kind of like a third down, fourth down conversion opportunity that the Ravens have. They 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 run for five on third and six, and they go, well, hell, we're, it's, we're playing four down football here. Remember, that's the rules of the game, and they'll go right up and run it down your run it down your throat for another three yards to to get the first down. I, that's the way I look at that. He's he was uh, a, a terrific in this game. Brainy, as we've mentioned, all the all the positives we tossed on earlier when we were talking about his. His gambling style, I think, are still there. Yeah, and I'm going to go with Peters for my number two, uh, for all the reasons that we just talked about. And also for, uh, you know, there's certainly, like we talked about with some of the off-the-field stuff with Ramsey, there was certainly the potential for that to to spill over and happen in between the white lines. And there was some chirping, for sure. Um, but by and large, it did not, you know, get out of hand. I mean, sometimes we, we've seen guys, you know, in these kind of rematch, revenge games, whatever you want to call them, uh, sort of lose their composure a little bit, and and it can and it can hurt the team. Uh, he at least did not allow that to happen in between the white lines. So, <laughs> uh, I, I'm giving him the number two for his play, but I just wanted to kind of throw that in there too. Okay, positive comportment note. That's good, and and yeah, it's a good thing. I mean, they did have an un, uh, unsportsmanlike contact that went to Clark, and I don't, I never did hear a good explanation of that one, but. Uh, uh, now, maybe. You know, I, I remember that one. And I think the referee called it because he thought that uh, so. So Cooks had caught the ball right b- b- behind Clark. And so he, you know, he's tossing the ball. Cooks is trying to toss the ball towards the ref who's walking from behind Clark. So Clark doesn't see the ref. Right. Uh-huh. And so he bats the ball down because I think he thought that that Cooks was tossing the ball at, at him, him. Yeah. And was taunting him. But I think the ref took it as hey. You, you you know I'm back here. Why are you knocking the ball out of my hand? I'm trying to get the ball and reset the ball. I don't think Clark even knew he was behind him. Yeah, that uh, you know that would have been fairly called just a delay of game penalty too. That was that would have been another way to do that. But anyway, they they want to be strict. Game was out of hand. Didn't want to let it get any more in terms of score. Didn't want to let it get out of hand. Otherwise, yep. who's your number one guy? Oh boy, it's kind of a tough one for me. Um, <laughs> there were a lot of good plays on on defense going all around and I always, and I already used Judon and Peters. Uh, so I'm going to pick a number one that maybe a lot of people maybe didn't think about, uh, but I'm going to pick Earl Thomas. 
And the reason that I pick Earl Thomas is because I think what Earl does consistently, right? People want interceptions and they want, you know, turnovers and sort of these other highlight plays. I think what Earl does that really does not show up in a box score is he takes away routes, right? When he's in the middle of the field, whether that's deep or shallow, and in this in this game, there was a little bit more maybe of, of playing in that shallow because that's, you know, Rams like to throw those shallow crossers. And also he was involved in, in the pass rush too. I think that he just does things where maybe there's not a statistic that captures it, but the quarterback will look at routes or route combination or see him coming, you know, off the edge or off the slot on a rush and then have to go to another option. Right. Mm-hmm. And that just doesn't get credited anywhere. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say that because maybe coaches track it, but in terms of, um, you know, traditional statistics, you don't see that anywhere. And so people say, well, you know, what's you know, Earl's great and everything, but hey, we, we were expecting, you know, you know, sort of highlight real stuff. I, I don't, if you get that, that's great. But I don't think that's really what his value is. I think his value is he takes things away. He eliminates options from the offense. Yeah, I, I think there is some fine 29 on every play going on by opposing uh, quarterbacks. Fortunately, I think there's some fine 24 going on on every yeah. play right now but, <laughs> but yeah that's, 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 that certainly is a lot um but this heat maps we saw from thomas when he's on the in the game and when he was not in the game at seattle really support your position is that opposing quarterbacks treated him like darth vader over the middle and they weren't they weren't throwing the ball anywhere near him yeah and i and i know i mean you could you could look back at this game and you could look at you know his box score you could even probably go to pff and look at their grades and you're gonna say what's this guy talking about Earl didn't have a great game it's just not going to be captured in traditional statistics. Mm-hmm. I, I, I agree completely. My, my number one guy is Jimmy Smith. Uh, the sack was terrific, very ballsy, but Smith also executed on the play from the blind side, got there quickly, uh, you know, took care of business, uh, didn't let Goff slip away, slip away. Just, a, just a great play. Uh, the interception late in the game, another uh, you know, really nice conversion of an opportunity. And you like to see that. You like to see the hands be good in such situations. Most of the time they have been for the Ravens, I think, this year. But uh, good game from Smith. Those are two big plays. Uh, he wasn't beaten often as a uh, as a receiver either or by the receivers. So uh, so that was another positive thing. So anyway, Jimmy Smith is my guy, and and uh, I'm comfortable with that. I'm just like you're comfortable with Thomas, I think, in a, for some similar reasons. Hey, a, a sack and an interception from your outside cornerback. I, I think you're going to take that every time. There you go. So, Josh, tell us how we doing in terms of the mailbag. All right, uh, let's get to a little bit of the mailbag. Again, use the hashtag Film Study Mailbag over on Twitter to get in your questions. Uh, first question up is about the MVP that you guys missed, the Ravens' offense, and the fact that they, they are leading time and possession, that it's keeping this defense fresh. How big of a deal is that, that the defense is not on the field a whole lot? You want to start, Michael? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I think this this goes back to last year and, and we're seeing it again this year. I think, um, you know, when you're controlling the ball that the way that they are on offense um, to your you just mentioned it in the question, Josh, you're keeping your defense fresh. Number one, which um, when you look at what they're doing on offense and the fact that they're getting a lead. And so when the defense does get on the field, they're facing more pass freshness is a pretty big deal in pass rush because there's no way to, you know, I think a defensive line gets tired or more quickly uh, than, than having a pass rush play after play after play. So they've got some freshness there. And then also, 
you know, you, you guys, I'm not going to use a hockey analogy. I'm just going to stop myself right there. But <laughs> anytime that you can keep the opposing offense off the field, when your offense is on the field, you're keeping the opposing offense off the field. That's like uh, a, another defensive aid, right? Your defense is not out there making the stop or taking the ball away, but it really is aiding your defense because they're not on the field and they're not having to face uh, opponent scoring, you know, uh, potential. So uh, I think it's a huge thing. And I think it's something I know, Ken, you've tracked that, that the, the Ravens seem to, to dominate that in terms of, you know, snaps in, in almost every game they play. They've, they've certainly dominated snaps. They've dominated effectiveness in the fourth quarter of the Martindale era, which is really something that, that you, you know, you could point to as, as supporting your argument about the freshness. I think he's an absolute master of snap management. Of, uh, of of getting they didn't even have to do that much in this game because they were in that 10 of the 11 defenders were the same on those last 18 plays they, the only guys they rotated in was that was a sole defensive lineman so uh you know they didn't even really have to go to the to, to the rest factor in this one but uh you know they ran them out of the ballpark when they ran them out of the ballpark they scored them out of any offensive game planning they might have done to change the outcome of this game by, you know, by being up 14 to three, then 21 to three, then I guess it was 21 to six, 28 to six. However, that progressed exactly in there. Um, you know, the Rams were out of options in terms of what they could do offensively and, and golf in a, you know, pass out of the shotgun, every down kind of situation is just not a very impressive quarterback. Nope. All right. With Michael Pierce returning to practice, how does that affect Ricard? Does it mean he can focus on fullback and offensive play? That, that's been my theory coming up. Now, Ricard only played one defensive snap as I scored it this last week. So I think we're already seeing a, a conversion to that. You know, my theory, Michael, and we haven't had a chance to talk about this personally, is that Ricard could take a greatly expanded offensive role as a receiver because of how impactful he is on the edge at putting his body into opposing cornerbacks and how that might tend to loosen up the defense even more. Not that, not that they're already having to guard every exit against Lamar, but to, to additionally have to worry about Ricard being on the edge where, you know, you really want to try and be able to play on an Island against the Ravens one-on-one -on -one out there to try and keep some assets for the box. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's just another wrinkle, right? As, as if they don't already have enough things uh, that are driving defenses crazy. <laughs> but it's just another wrinkle that you can throw in. And it wasn't Ricard, but you could see him in this role. If you if you look at Hollywood's first touchdown, where they kind of uh, you know bring a guy in motion, they've already got three guys on the on the right side, but they bring a, a fourth guy in motion to kind of overload that. Um, but then they they do the play action. And you see, I think it was Boyle sort of leaking out right into the flat off of that play action. And you see that a ton. Everybody runs that content where you have the little play action. The tight end comes from the opposite side and then kind of leaks out off the run action. Right. And you throw it to him a little mm -hmm. quick play in the flat. Well, Eric Weddle comes screaming over because his eyes are on that play. Right. And so now he leaves the middle open and Hollywood just crosses, you know, right to the other side. The cornerback is already out leveraged because Hollywood has inside position on him and he's running away from him. Weddle and the middle linebacker both have their eyes on Lamar and that flat route because, like I said, everybody runs that. So that could be Ricard. That could be Boyle. That could be any of those guys. And it just adds another wrinkle. And it could be even more effective with Ricard because they don't throw it to him ever. So <laughs> when he's in there, you're thinking, well, there's no way that this is going to be that play. This is definitely going to be a run. And then you flip it out to him and there's nobody out there. Well, he's got seven catches now on the year, which is well, the all-time the all, the all record for receptions in a season where a player also had a sack. 
That's wow. that's Curry of, of Josh Yoshi twenty fifty two. Make sure you give him a follow on on Twitter. Uh, but but anyway, some 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 very cool stuff there. But Ricardo, I, I could see him becoming Ovi Mahaley in terms of his offensive impact. Ovi Mahaley in two thousand six was a guy with with two catches going into that Tennessee game. All of a sudden, he caught a thirty yard pass, ran over a couple of guys going for the touchdown, and the Ravens came back and won that game. And he had twenty catches the rest of the year. It wouldn't surprise me if Ricard all of a sudden was a two catch a game guy the rest of the way, just because of the film, A, the film that creates, B, the mismatch it creates on the edge, you know, to, you can pick up eight or 10 yards with that. I mean, this is not Vontae Leach on the outside, who was a big Coke machine of a man, that was his nickname, but really only ran one route, the three yard out. And, you know, you get him the ball and then, you know, he can turn around basically and maybe get one yard, but that was about his maximum yak he, he could get to before the defense would get to him. Ricard is just so hard to bring down. He's bigger than even Leach was. That that he, he he's an exciting option on the outside. I like it. And the way uh, Lamar likes to pass touchdowns around, you could see him trying to get Ricard one, like to as okay, something to go with all the hard work he's been doing. Yeah, I think he had actually two last year, so he wasn't he wasn't shut off the board like uh, like Boyle had been. Okay. He needs one this year. You know, Lamar's trying to, like Josh said, Lamar's trying to get everybody a touchdown this year. So <laughs> let's get him one this year. All right. Uh, with Ellis and uh, Pico playing okay, coming right off the streets, and the defense still being great, does this hurt the value as far as Pierce with a Raven? Does that decrease his value for next year? Oh, that's a good question. You want to go first on this, Michael? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, I think it. I think it could. Um, I mean, it, it, you can look at it from either side, right? You can you can look at what you just said, and you can say, "Hey, look at what they're doing." You know, with these two street free agents they just brought in, and without Mike Pierce, and you know, defense really hasn't missed the beat. Now you have to factor in some of that stuff that Ken mentioned earlier, where you know, if you're up thirty-five to six, uh, you're not going to be running the ball. So it doesn't matter if it's Michael Pierce, Refrigerator Perry. No matter who, you know, that yeah. that player is not going to have an opportunity to show how effective they can be uh, in that situation, but. Um, you know, there, there, there is also the flip side of it is that when, when Michael Pierce is in there, if you just look at his individual performance in a vacuum, uh, he's typically pretty effective. It's probably a little more effective last year than he's been this year, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, you know, really, really effective. So, you know, obviously his, his camp, his agent is going to look at it from that side and say, hey, yeah, don't, don't talk to me about these other guys. Look at what my guy did when he was in there and what he's done, right, over the last couple of seasons. But it's kind of hard to, to not not look at that other side and say, well, yeah, that's great, but there's a price for that, right? Yeah, there's, he, there's... <laughs> it's possible he could be less valuable to the Ravens. It's possible, but but the Ravens have a choice of cornerstone players to make this next year, and they might only be able to sign one, or they might be able to sign two of, and maybe you can even expand the group. But the big three to me are Peters, Pierce, and Judon, and so if they can find a way to get two, that'd be great. They will set a market for Pierce. I don't think they'll they'll say, um, you know, go to the market and we'll see if we can match it. I don't think that that's the angle they'll go. I think they'll, they'll instead go, hey, look, we want to make sure you have something to work with. And we don't even mind if you go and take this to some other teams. Just come back to us with the, with an opportunity to match the bid if it's if it's higher. But we're going to set the market and say you deserve to make at least nine million a year on an average annual value, and and that is probably less than what he'll, what we would end up signing for. But at least it would set the market, make it easier for him to get into negotiations quicker with another team, and then maybe 
He's the he's the one guy who or or, or one of two that the Ravens can bring back at, at that price because I think they're in a better position to make a reasonable offer and make a reasonable judgment in terms of price and also of course by setting the market and making sure there's at least one really good bid for him you get a good a better comp pick for him. All right. Um, you can also get in your questions by email. There's an email link on the website at the very bottom of filmstudybaltimore.com. And Andrew sends in an email who is, you know, hearing people talk about how to stop Lamar, and they keep pointing to the Chargers last year using the 7DB strategy. And uh, he's wondering what has changed this season that makes that not viable, and should people give up on the notion that Lamar has a, this kryptonite that coaches are refusing to use? I don't think the other defensive coordinators can afford to give up on the notion because they have to try and find a way to stop them. But I don't think the seven DBs would be the specific effective strategy this year. I think it was Lamar 2018. And frankly, the beating they took from Ingram and Bosa up front in that game was just very unexpected in terms of, of how effective it was. Yeah, I, I, we, I talked about this a little bit earlier. I mean, people look at that and, and again they're looking at it very statically right you say, oh the seven dbs that's the one thing that stopped him well it stopped him and that team with that play caller <laughs> right that's what it stopped mm -hmm. but if you like i said if you look at the pittsburgh game this year and they they probably are one of the teams that slowed him down the most they have a similar in terms of athleticism they're not true dbs but you know devin bush is a linebacker but he runs four four three Right. Mm -hmm. you know, there's not a lot of DBs that are running four or four. And you got Mark Barron, right, who's a former safety. You got Mike Hilton, who's kind of a nickel Sam hybrid. So they used a similar sort of approach in terms of let's just throw a bunch of athletes out there. Bud Dupree, TJ Watt, you know, these are all guys that are athletic dudes, Nika Fitzpatrick. And I think it did have some impact. Obviously, speed on defense is going to help against Lamar. But I think you see the impact of Greg Roman as the play caller this year right okay you want to you want to throw a bunch of speed at us we're just gonna run power right let's mm -hmm. see your guys you know line up and fit against a pulling left guard or against you know ricard kicking you out a 300 pound guy kicking out you know a safety <laughs> so let's, let's see let's see how you fare against that right since you want to throw all that speed out there so yeah. i think you see the difference this year uh with with the play caller uh among other things in terms of how you counter that when they want to throw a bunch of little guys out there who can run outstanding all right, aren't the uh, aren't the Ravens doing something different this year too with their adjustments that they've got more guys in the backfield blocking? Well, there's there's a couple of things, and I wanted to bring this point up earlier, but we can talk about it now. Uh, but if you look at most NFL teams, you're only allowed one guy in motion at any given time. If you don't, it's an illegal shift. But but the motion player is. It's an asset that you want to move and you want to probe at the defense to find out what they're doing, obviously. But it's also one that if you can get a guy in, in motion who's a heavy, then you have a chance to effectively have, a pull, have an extra pulling guard on the play without actually pulling a lineman out of position. The Ravens use that much more than they use the receiver in motion um, on this team to try and get him a, a clean break off the line of scrimmage. I, find, I think that's one of the most core elements of differentiating Roman's offense from others in the league. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. When I, I chart the run game for this other project that I work on, and, and it's not something that ever makes it into the article because it's like super football nerdy and who cares. But I personally chart all the motions, like where all the tight ends line up, where the fullback lines up, all the motions on every play. And it's, it's just mind-boggling the amount of motion that they use with big people. Right. There's people are moving all over the place all the time. 
And think about all the things that that does, right? Number one, as a defense, you've heard this before. If you're stinking, you're if you're thinking, you're stinking, right? On uh-huh. defense, if you're not just playing fast, if you got to think about what's going on, you got to process. So everybody has a gap assignment, right? And now guys are moving. And so when a guy moves from one side to the formation to the other side, it creates an extra gap. So now you got to think, okay, who's going to take this extra gap? We've got to adjust, right? And now, um, so, so you've got that on your plate. But then they'll move another guy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now, wait a minute, wait a minute. We just adjusted to this guy who moved from right to left, and now they brought another guy to the other side. And then once the play is snapped, they'll pull a guy. So now there's a third person who has effectively moved from where they were pre-snap to post-snap. And you got to process and adjust to all of this in real time. And I think it just it just slows defenses down. It, isn't it? It's kind of similar in a sense to elements of deception like stunts and blitzes that are used in terms of the pass rush in terms of uh, neutralizing certain gaps on the field and winning them, maybe is the better way to put it, uh, for your offense. It's just it's it, that shift in responsibilities, overloading them, overstressing them, as you mentioned earlier, in terms of having to figure out what's going on. It's just uh, it's, it's a great way to win. And the timing of it, I don't know if a lot of people notice this. This is the last thing I'll say about it. Mm-hmm. If you look at the timing of a lot of those motions, whether it's a guy, whether it's a tight end, right, coming from one side or the other or crossing, or even if it's a wide receiver, if you look at the timing of that, and Eric Weddle spoke to this about uh, after the game last night, he said half the time he couldn't even see the ball. Right. So if you look at the timing of some of those motions, that guy is crossing right as Lamar is making that mesh fake to a running back. So you, if you're a linebacker, number one, you're already trying to look over offensive linemen. But number two, now you've got either this big tight end right, uh, you know, in front of the the running back as as Lamar is faking that, that making that ball fake or wide receiver. You literally can't see the ball. You don't know where it is. And all it takes when you have the kind of athlete like Lamar is is that split second of wait a minute, I got to hold, I got to hold till I see it. It's too mm-hmm. late. It's too mm-hmm. late. He gets the edge and he's faster than you, and and it's too late. Yeah, I I want to want to. Pick your brain on one more motion element while we're here. The Ravens run a lot of motion to one side and then motion back with the same player. Sometimes a different player, but sometimes it's the same player. Is the the goal of that first motion is to figure out man or zone or who, what those assignments are as best they can pick it up, and then the second one is for lining it up as well as they can with the snap for deception purposes or for uh, not letting the defense see where the ball is. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest with you, Ken. I, it could, it could be both or, or other reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think those are probably both true. I think there's truth to that, that, that I, I call it, you can call it different things. Some I call it return motion or yo-yo motion, right? Where mm-hmm. It's the same guy who goes one way and then he comes back. So typically when that's a tight end, you're trying to see if linebackers are going to bump. Right there. So whether it's linebackers at that level, too, or if you've got a safety there, you want to see if they're going to bump with that motion. Right. So Mm -hmm. they might not necessarily move completely in a position that will show that they're going to play man or zone coverage. But it it could reveal that. But the other thing it does is it just creates angles. Right. So if those guys just bump over a gap and now you want to run to the, the, the side that they just bump from you've now got a better angle because you've effectively moved them over, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so now you've got another angle and your blockers can can get leverage on them more easily. So it could be for those reasons that you mentioned. It could be for some other reasons. There's just a lot of different things that you can do with motion. And again, it's like you said, it's just another deceptive element that you throw at people. And um, in addition to, because when you look at what they're doing in their run game, they run a couple, they run a handful of core concepts. They're not running 20 different things. They're running like four or five different core concepts, but they dress it up with different personnel, with different motion. It looks different. 
It times out differently, but you know, it's, it's effectively the same five or six run plays. Um, but you just don't know as a defense. All right. Well, guys, that's a, uh, really in-depth, extra-long episode to dig into the defense, which is great for this holiday weekend. Michael, uh, share your plugs, your Twitter account, where people can go see your writing over at Russell Street, all that. That's a, that's a thanks, this is a Thanksgiving size, a Thanksgiving yes. helping episode. Yes. <laughs> uh, but well, yourself. <laughs> exactly. So I'm, I'm on Twitter at, at Abukari, that's A-B-U-K-A-R-I. Um, I'm not actually writing an article for Russell Street this year, but I do kind of contribute to one. There's this uh, the coordinators project. Cole Jackson at Cole Jackson RSR kind of leads it. Uh, Ken already mentioned Yoshi 2052 uh, at big play receiver. Um, we all kind of chip in and do a different part of game charting. And then Cole actually writes the article. But uh, I also want to encourage people. You guys are film study Baltimore now, not film study Ravens. Yep. Yeah. So. So look, hey, you want to check out Russell Street Report? We appreciate that, but what you really need to do is go to Film Study Baltimore and check out everything that Josh and Ken has going on over there. Uh, there may not be people that are crazy about me saying that, but you know, I don't give a damn. So, <laughs> Michael, we so appreciate having you on the show and taking care of my own plugs for me. I I, I can't even say enough. Uh, w- one thing we're trying to do with with people, and and we've had some success with this, and obviously it's a it's a format we're still getting used to, is trying to have people do film study shorts, which means you come up with a good question. And I heard a couple in the mailbag that would probably qualify already tonight in terms of things we could make a 15-minute episode into. Just have a discussion with me. Treat me like a like an on-air radio talk show host. If you have a study you want to present, great. We'll, we'll look at that. I'll ask you a few questions about it. If you have an observation, we had a, a, a guy who is a lawyer, went back to the rules for roughing the passer and tried to replace what were some impressions that I had about roughing the passer with what the rules actually say, which is kind of cool because, Michael, you probably think every everything you know about roughing the passer is by example you learn. If you hit mm-hmm. the quarterback in the helmet, if you hit him with your arm, if you if you – uh, you know, spear him if you hit him too low. You know, all those things, they're roughing the passer. But we don't know what the actual rule is to understand. Anyway, we had an interesting guy doing, you know, going back to the rule and talking about the other elements that we don't necessarily consider when we're when we're doing it. But uh, we encourage people to do film study shorts if they're uh, if they're interested. And a, and a big part about the shorts is you don't need experts, just someone that, well, that wants to have a conversation at, at any skill level. Absolutely true. So if you have an interesting question, put it on short. We can just have questions if you like, or if you have observations and you really want to talk and you don't feel like you're getting enough airtime with with a mailbag question, that's a perfect spot for you. Get on. Kind of give us your theory about what's going on. We had one guy who really wanted to talk about this offseason, who the Ravens ought to sign, what their what their offers ought to be. That's cool. We'll, we'll take that. And, uh, you know, just an, another interesting bite-sized bit of uh, you know, podcast content for people. It's more like 15, 10, 15, 20 minutes at a max. Yeah, look at me. I'm not an expert, and there are people listening to me. There's <laughs> certainly more people out there, certainly more interesting people out there than me. So you guys should Sell definitely jump on. Way short. At, you guys should party. definitely jump, jump on those those shorts and and and, and engage with Ken, and, and then you can, you can hear your stuff uh, as opposed to having to listen to me. <laughs> if you are not following Michael at Abukari, uh, on Twitter, you are missing out on all kinds of unbelievably good content. So as much as he goes into these semi-retirement hibernations from football and analysis, and, and we miss him tremendously as, as being the show, the, the, the co-host on the show last year, uh, you know, he's still out there producing great play content and commenting on Twitter and, and uh, you know, a great guy to know.
Appreciate that. Very nice of you to say, kid. All right, guys. Well, enjoy your Thanksgiving and your Black Friday crowds. Take it easy, guys. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's List of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.